Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to worship you together. We ask that you prepare our hearts for that which you have for each and every one of us today. Lord, would you speak to us and help us to take home those thoughts that you would like us to work on this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So good morning. The passage we'll be discussing this morning is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, if you'd like to open up your Bibles with me. Our passage has a lovely topic for us, one that I'm sure is really going to be exciting for everyone, maybe even the thing you were strongly hoping we would get to discuss this morning. This passage we're going to be discussing, it's about sin. S-I-N, yep, those three little letters that when you put them together, they spell some kind of trouble. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So some of you are out there right now getting really excited, like, man, if, if I go to church and they don't talk about sin, I don't think I went to church this morning. And the rest of you might be cringing a little bit inside. Come on, Jared, do we really have to talk about sin today? Can't we just talk about something more uplifting and more encouraging? Well, two things. Don't blame me. I'm just preaching the lectionary, right? So I'm just preaching what I'm supposed to preach. And if this sermon about sin is not uplifting and encouraging, then I think we are missing something important about it because the Bible never deals with sin outside of the context of grace. So for every impact and result of sin, I can show you the beautiful power of grace if you would like to see it. So I thought I would start off my sermon today with a story. Back in 2014, I made the decision with my wife, Abby, to go to college in Germany instead of here in the U.S. I had spent one year of studying in the States, dealing with the insane cost of going to college. So I figured out a loophole. So for all you high school kids sitting in here, and maybe even some of you college kids, listen very closely. I figured out that if I use my German skills to go to college in Germany, I'll get to do two things. Number one, I'll get to see the world with a really crazy and exciting study abroad experience. And I will also not have to spend ridiculously crazy amounts of money on American tuition. But this came with a catch. Believe it or not, as far as the German government is concerned, I had to do a year's worth of catch-up work because even though I had studied at an American university for a year, 12 years of American public school and one year of American college was not considered up to snuff for their study requirements. And believe me, there was no grace for me. So for a year, I got to go to school in the beautiful city of Marburg, nestled in the Lahn River Valley, surrounded by medieval castles, cobblestone streets, a thousand years of rich history, And oh, I also need to mention your not-so-uncommon group of anarchists and communist radicals, sometimes of the slightly violent variety, but let's not get sidetracked. So in that year, one of my favorite teachers was this guy who they had teaching history. His name was Herr Werther. Herr Werther, what a German name. And he was by far the most stereotypically German teacher that they had on their staff. Most of their teachers were people who had traveled and seen the world, who spoke multiple languages, who had much cross-cultural experience, but not have Atta. This guy did not have a cross-cultural bone in his body. He spoke German, and he did not make much of an effort to wrap his head around any of the misunderstandings that came up in his class throughout the year that we had together. 
So every once in a while, someone would raise their hand and they would ask a question where it had become apparent that there was some kind of a misunderstanding due to language and cultural disconnect. And so nine times out of 10, this went over his head completely. And so he would either respond with an answer to a different question, or he would even tell somebody, I don't know what in the world you are talking about. So, but the truth is, I really enjoyed his class and I learned a lot through it. And his honest feedback to me in his blunt fashion, it taught me a lot and helped prepare me for the stricter German grading system that was coming my way. But one thing that he often did, which was kind of funny in hindsight, is he would single me out in front of the entire class because he knew that I was the only real practicing Christian in the room and that I had planned to be a pastor someday. So anytime we would talk about history things which had to do with church, which in Germany is pretty much for, it's unavoidable for about a thousand years of their history, I would be subject to some kind of commentary about Herr Wenzel over there and those pesky Christians. So one of my favorite stories was one day we were talking about the Enlightenment and the way that in the Enlightenment, the Christian doctrine of original sin came under fire and was talked about very intensively by the thinkers of that time who were proposing alternative views for the understanding of human nature. So Herr went on a long diatribe one day about how the Christian doctrine of sin is complete and utter nonsense that we're really all born good and we just need to work together on making the world a better place by embracing human freedom and ingenuity. And in this talk, I can't remember exactly what he said to me, but he did say something that caused everyone after class to come up to me. And I remember spending the, the rest of the, uh, the entire lunch hour just answering people's questions about what Christians really believe. So in many ways, he set me up with an awesome opportunity to talk to non-Christians about the gospel, which is always a beautiful thing. And so all in all, it was a good day. But the truth is that what my German teachers taught about original sin, it has actually been a common struggle for Western folks for the last couple of hundred years. There's this author, G.K. Chesterton, he was a British guy who wrote a book called Orthodoxy, where he says the following quote. He says, modern masters of science they are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with fact. Now, the ancient masters of religion, they were also quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin, which is a fact as practical as potatoes. Whether or not man could be washed with miraculous waters, there was no doubt at any rate that he wanted washing. But certain religious leaders in London, they've begun in our day to not deny the highly disputable water, but to deny the indisputable dirt. Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which ironically is the only part of Christian theology which really can be proved. So what Chesterton is talking about here is something which I think we have seen quite often. People really struggle with this idea that we are all sinners. Sure, he might be a sinner, or you might be a sinner over there, I am I a sinner? Am I really a sinner? The irony, though, that Chesterton points out is there are so many invisible things that we believe in as Christians. We believe in an invisible God. We believe in the incarnate Son who walked on the earth, who lived the perfect life, who died an undeserved death, and he even rose from the grave. We believe in baptism and communion as sacraments, which are signs of invisible grace, not empty and naked symbols which only convey our actions, 
but they're also visible and real signs of what God is doing here in our midst. We believe in the Holy Spirit who gives us new life and even gifts for the ministry that God is calling each and every one of us to do. We believe that God hears our prayers and we believe that he even answers those prayers from time to time. So Cheston points out that all these things are challenging to the people in our day and age. How should I believe in things which I cannot see with my own eyes? So for many, these lists of things, they belong in the category of unempirical, unprovable, nice to believe, but not really tangible things that belong to either unscientific faith or maybe even wishful thinking. Yet for a world that talks about science and empiricism, where I need to see something with my own eyes to believe it, Chesterton points out that original sin is the very part of our system of faith which makes the most sense when we look at the world around us. We look around and we see everywhere we look the consequences of sin. A world where people kill each other. A world where people lie, where people steal, where people hate, and where people cheat. It is not all that they do. People do good things too. But we can't really shake the problems of this world when we look around. We look for answers. We struggle with the idea, though, that those answers might also implicate me. That is what Christians have been talking about for a really long time. And that is precisely at the very foundation of the good news of the gospel, which is the reality that God not only offers salvation for all, but that all truly need it. All are in the same position and on even footing. And so this passage that we're going to look at today, it has much to say about this. But as we take a closer look, I think we will find something that stands out. I think that the reason people don't want to talk about sin is not because they're ignoring this reality of the world around them, not because they're too confident in themselves, though sometimes that may be the case, but because they're afraid of condemnation. They're afraid of judgment. And to be fair, this is often how Christians have used this doctrine in the past to engage with the world around them. But the concept of original sin that we find here in Romans chapter 5, it is one that leads not to condemnation or judgment for those who take it seriously, but to the knowledge of something much greater, which is God's plan that he will fix the problem. and He will allow grace to rule and reign and bring new power into our lives. So let's take a look at what Paul lays out here in our passage today. The first thing that Paul lays out here in the passage is the universality of sin. Verse 12, he writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Then he pauses the thought and goes on a really long parenthesis, and then eventually he comes back to it. But we're going to start with that first thought. Here Paul is building up a comparison that he will be making throughout the entire passage between the work of Adam and the work of Christ. He talks about the first sin which was committed by Adam, the firstborn of humanity. But notice very closely what he says. Sin came into the world through, all, through one man, and yet all sinned. What Paul is talking about here is much more than just that one sin over there, or this little sin over here. What he's talking about is a deep problem, the problem of inherited sin. This is what Christians have believed for 2,000 years, that the real problem is not just sins, lying, cheating, stealing, etc. 
There is a much deeper problem than this at the core. It is the thing down deep that really causes all of these other things. Sins are caused not just by bad choices. Sins are caused by sin. And no human being is exempt. So in a couple weeks, my wife and I are going to be heading to Charleston, South Carolina, for a vacation. And we've never been there before. So the last couple of weeks, as we've been talking to people, we've heard a lot of really awesome stories and amazing things about the city of Charleston. In fact, yesterday, as I was looking at the pictures of the city, I thought, oh, what happens if we go and we don't want to come back? And don't worry, I'm going to come back. But, you know, I did seriously sit there yesterday and go, this seems like a really nice place to be. But in one of the conversations we've had about how beautiful Charleston is, one couple did point out the challenging fact that in the midst of all of that beauty, the realization also creeps in that as beautiful as it is, it was built on the back of slavery. Nothing gorgeous in this place was built without being touched by the evil that was slavery. And honestly, when I heard it, it got me thinking. In many ways, I think this is really the same reality that we all deal with as humanity when we look in at ourselves. If we take seriously what Paul is saying here, we come to the realization that in the midst of all of the beauty that we see in human beings, in the midst of all of the complicated reality that is this world that we've built around us, all of it is nonetheless interwoven with our history and the unavoidable realities of sin. All have sinned because that one did sin. This is something which can be a hard pill to swallow, for myself sometimes included. But ironically, as much as people often struggle with this teaching, lately I would say that there's been a little bit of a shift going on in the culture around us. All of a sudden, we are surrounded by the realities of human sin. We don't necessarily use that word to describe it, but we are more aware right now of the problems of human nature and human history than has been for a long time. The times have changed a bit. The sins we're discussing today, they're not always the same sins that our ancestors spent so much time debating. For most of us, we're no longer concerned as much about drinking, smoking, gambling, dancing, or any of those classic themes that our ancestors used to debate all the time. If we look around, though, we see that a new form of morality is defining the conversation. We must free the world from oppression and injustice. The wrongs of our ancestors need to be atoned for. The systemic injustices must be corrected. We're even mindful now when we go shopping that we aren't just buying a product, we're also investing in making the world a better place. So I would argue that in this tense moment our culture is in, in many ways we are seeing the death of enlightenment optim uh, optimism about human nature. Gone are the days of tabula rasa, the blank slate where humans are born fresh and ready to do good and to bring good into the world. No, we are all increasingly aware in the 21st century this world is complicated. We might not always use the terminology of sin, but I think more and more we are seeing the troubled reality that we are confronted with. But the irony is that, there's, that a growing sense of seeing sin in the world around us does not necessarily lead to the world becoming a better place. It's not making us more self-aware and more humble or more patient with others. I mean, sin without original sin, it's actually a recipe for self-righteousness. 
It's a recipe for looking at others and blaming and judging others. It's a strategy for finding fault in those other people around me. On the other hand, though, the the universality of sin, as Paul lays it out in our passage today, that all have sinned, that all have fallen short, that in Adam, humanity has a problem together. This is the first step in a strategy that actually has potential to help us in our situation because it levels the playing field. It puts us all in the same spot. This is a mindset that sees fault not just in others, but also in me. That sees not just the mistakes that others make, but also the mistakes that I make and the need that I have for a solution. This is the first step in solving our problem together. So if we start with the problem, how do we get to the solution? This brings me to my next point in the passage, the reign of grace. By the end of verse 14, Paul has laid out the problem that we all have, the reality of being in Adam, the fact that all of humanity, whether they have experienced the law of Moses or not, all of humanity is in the same spot, is under the weight of sin and its consequence, which is death. So at this point, as we're reading Paul's discussion of original sin, we can feel the weight of this problem in the text. Is there any hope for this problem? But then comes verse 15. The free gift, it's not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The sin of the whole world, it might be bad, it might be weighty, it might be troubling, but it does not even begin to compare with the gloriously free gift that is grace. But honestly, as I'm reading this, I'm struck by this concept of grace, which I encounter in this passage. Is this really how I normally experience grace? In verse 21, Paul describes the reign of grace, the reign of grace. Thinking through this in the past week, I was struck at how differently this comes across than my normal day-to-day experience. I don't think that this is how I personally experience grace, and I don't think it's how most of us experience grace on a regular basis. I might be wrong, but the way I typically experience grace, it's much more like an extreme backup plan. I will pull it out if I really need it when I'm finally willing to admit my limitations. But I work really hard to not need grace. I'm fine. I can handle it. I have everything under control. I don't admit my limitations. I don't admit my needs. I don't admit my immense need for divine power. But time and time again, I come up against a barrier. I'm not able to do everything as well as I would like to in my own power. I'm in need of something different. So every once in a while, when I finally am willing to admit I've reached my limit, I pull the ripcord of grace. When I truly hit my limitations, then I admit my faults and I ask people for understanding. Can you please, please, please just give me a little bit of grace? But what would it look like to live this differently? To start with grace, to live under the reign of grace, to be equipped not by my own power in Adam, but to be transformed and empowered by the power of Christ. I'm convinced that this solution is actually what the world around us needs so desperately. Rather than heaping more condemnation and judgment and stress and anxiety and pressure 
accusation and blame and pain and shame and guilt. And I made this list purposefully very long because I'm very confident that many of those words I just said have even come up in the last week for many of us. We need to start over. We need the reign of grace. So desperately do we need to rule the rule and reign of Christ who comes in and takes away our condemnation, who puts aside the judgment, who takes on our burdens, who sets the stones down and gives us the freedom that we truly long for. This Christian message of original sin in Adam, but free and unending grace, is the only real hope for the world around us. Not human ingenuity and creativity, not the self-righteous politics of one side or another, not the personalities of this major leader over here or this major figure over there, but grace, the transforming love of God, which allows us to truly love our neighbors, even those difficult ones who are really hard to love. So my challenge for you this week is to reflect on the reign of grace and live into the power of God. And this brings me finally to my last point. We've discussed the universality of sin and the free grace, the free reign of grace. But now, for the final few minutes, I would like to discuss how this passage envisions life in Christ. Life in Adam is described on the one hand as defined by sin, death, condemnation, judgment, and disobedience. In contrast, life in Christ is described as a free gift, grace abounding, justification, abundance, true life for all, eternal life. Earlier in chapter 5, before this morning's passage, Paul spends a lot of time talking about the peace of the gospel. The Christian doctrine of sin and grace is something which should produce humility, one that should produce repentance, one that should draw forth a willingness to reflect on our own weaknesses and admit our faults. However, I think there's often a misunderstanding. The result of this willingness to admit sin is not to dwell on this sin and to let this sin now define us. It is to step forth into the freedom of Christ, into a new life which is defined by the free reign of grace. I think that the reason people are often frustrated or opposed to the Christian understanding of sin is not because they can't grasp the logic of it, but because they see how often Christian life continues to be defined more by those things of Adam than those things of Christ. Condemnation, judgment, anxiety, and conflict. These things are the things of Adam. But all too often, they dominate the life of the church. Friends, we need to live into this message that we preach of free and abundant grace. Let's let this freedom of Christ define us, not the burden of sin. Let's try to let grace make us into a different kind of people, maybe even a people who are a tangible sign of Christ's kingdom to this struggling and burdened world around us. So I have an assignment for everybody this week. Okay, it's a really practical test for you this week as you're going through your day. I want you to ask this question. This thing that I'm doing right now, is it Adam or is it Christ? Okay, it's a really simple question. Is it Adam or is it Christ? Okay, but do me a favor. When you don't pass the test, go easy on yourself. Don't be so Adam about it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the free reign of grace. We just ask that you'd help us to live into this freedom, that you'd change our hearts, that you'd give us newfound life in Christ, and that this life in Christ would shine forth to the world around us so desperately in need of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.